Markham, Richmond Hill, Vaughan. From everywhere you are. Aurora, Newmarket, East Willemberry. This is The Feed. Georgina, King, Whitchurch, Stovall. The Feed is York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to the people that live and work here. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. On February 24th, the world watched in horror as Putin's military forces began a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Thousands of innocent lives have been lost. Millions of people have been displaced, and accusations of war crimes by the enemy are bubbling to the surface. Diplomatic efforts, widespread sanctions, humanitarian aid, but still the war rages on with no clear end in sight. The Honorable Peter McKay joins us now with his view of the conflict. Peter was a member of Parliament for 18 years and held several key cabinet positions, including national defense, foreign affairs, and justice. He is currently strategic advisor at Deloitte. Welcome to the feed, and Peter, I wish that it was under better circumstances that we are chatting today. Thank you, and it's nice to be with you, and and you're right. These are trying times in Ukraine, but really this has had a a global effect and continues to ripple into so many corridors. Absolutely. I got to ask you this. So Ukraine's plans for joining NATO, they were shelved back in 2010 with the election of Viktor Yanukovych as president. He, I understand, preferred to keep Ukraine non-aligned. If Ukraine was a NATO member today, would we be seeing a very different picture? I think so, and and in fact, it goes back even beyond 2010. It was 2008, and uh, I was foreign minister. I was there with our prime minister, Stephen Harper, in Bucharest. And the discussion of both Ukraine and Georgia joining NATO, along with a handful of other countries, some of which have ascended now, was on the table. And my recollection, tragically, is that uh, everything is done by consensus at NATO, as you know. But Germany and France were vehemently opposed to ascendancy or what was called membership action. And it it essentially, it ended there. And um, that set Ukraine off in a much different direction. And, you know, for a very long time, Vladimir Putin and the regime there, I believe, has had quite a, a, a sinister, diabolical plan to try to reassemble the Soviet Union, including bringing countries like Ukraine and uh, Georgia and others back into their fold. And uh, that would have been thwarted had uh, Ukraine been permitted entrance into NATO. I think the European Union uh, membership would have also helped in that regard. The other aspect of that is that NATO members, NATO country members, are not allowed to defend a country in crisis as Ukraine is right now because they're not a member of NATO. So that leaves everyone with their hands tied. It's bizarre, isn't it? Um, Article 5 of NATO, there are 30 member countries now, and those member countries that include Canada and the United States are um, not prevented, but there is a, a very real feeling that if they were to in any way become involved in a direct confrontation with the aggressor here being Russia, that this would invoke this Article 5, causing all member countries to then enter into the fray and, of course, escalate to what would then be truly a a global third world war. But member countries uh, have been involved, as you know, in heavy sanctions, the response to the immigration and humanitarian crisis you mentioned. And, of course, 
bringing in weapons, lethal weapons, to allow Ukraine to defend itself. Other countries outside of NATO, including Australia, have been arguably more forward-leaning. But I think as we get more and more into this horrible uh, conflict, you are going to see these rules being bent further that will allow countries like ours, the United States, uh, UK, and others, to send the necessary weaponry for Ukraine to turn back Russia. And they've been doing a, just an unbelievable, uh, spectacular effort to, to protect themselves, as one would expect. Would there be any circumstance under which uh, NATO countries could come together and be boots on the ground in Ukraine and do that safely? I don't think so. Um, and I don't believe that that were that to happen, that Russia would... Uh, do anything other than uh, you know begin a full-scale assault in other out-of-Ukraine areas, including Poland, Moldova, um, Czech, all of these neighboring countries, again, which were part of the Soviet Union, would then potentially uh, suffer the wrath. Um, bombing would be the most immediate response. That That's speculation, but were NATO countries to put boots on the ground, that would be basically the equivalent of a declaration of war. And let's be clear, and Russia has for a very long time, and particularly under Vladimir Putin, uh, felt this paranoia that NATO was encroaching upon them, that NATO was pushing further and further into a, a, an aggressive, threatening position. That simply isn't borne out by the facts. Uh, this Cold War and, and tension has been there you know, since the fall of the Berlin Wall. But really, having sat around NATO tables, I can tell you there has never, ever been any intention other than to be in a defensive posture and to ensure the stability and security of Europe. Peter, earlier this week, Russia's top diplomat warned Ukraine against triggering World War III, in fact, saying that the invasion of Ukraine is a dangerous wake-up call for the United Nations. So what does that mean, and who is this guy? Well... Uh, this guy is uh, a fellow named Sergei Lavrov, and to put it in, in context, uh, I was the foreign minister when he was foreign minister of Russia. Uh, he's still the foreign minister of Russia, mm -hmm. so it says a great deal about the communist system of government and, and the stability of ministers in, in some ways. Uh, I mean, this is a, this is a uh, ridiculous statement that somehow um, NATO countries and the West would be to blame for a escalation to the point of nuclear conflict. This is saber rattling in the extreme, but of course it's it's not lost on anyone that Russia has the largest arsenal of nuclear weapons of any country mm. in the world. And so when they say that they may use tactical nuclear weapons, we have to take that threat seriously. But do I think that that is likely to happen? No, I don't. Do I think that there's an opportunity for um, accident or rogue activity? Most of these weapons that are of the greatest threat and are not located in Russia. They're on ships, submarines, and in the air. One very concerning aspect of this, we're hearing that mercenaries are, are being brought in to fight with Russian military. And, and, you know, it almost, it's certainly not a level playing field by any stretch of the imagination, this invasion of Ukraine. But it makes it even more perilous when you hear about mercenaries uh, getting their hands on weapons and going into Ukraine and doing the, the terrible deeds that they are. 
Oh, it's it's horrendous. And you're right. Um, the conventional Russian army, of course, are, are wreaking havoc and creating um, a horrible situation on the ground. But these mercenaries, many of who come from Syria or were hardened and trained in Syria, something called the Wagner Group, uh, Chechnyans, none of whom play by any rules of engagement, not that there has been much in the fog of war in, in Ukraine that one would uh, describe as a conventional war, but it's, it is added misery and suffering. Rape as a weapon of war, there is fear of chemical and biological weapons being used in addition to the discussion around nuclear weapons. This is a, a frightening scenario. And they're not accountable. There, there is no uh, uniform. There is no uh, code of conduct. This is just unleashing god-awful pain and suffering on the people of Ukraine. And it, it speaks again to the ruthlessness of Vladimir Putin, uh, a tyrant, a despot. There's not enough adjectives to describe mm. him. And one would hope that he will be charged with war crimes, crimes against humanity, and that a strong case is now being made for genocide, mm. and all of which could leave him um, in the Hague, in the prisoner's dock, which would be, a, I, I would suggest, a... Uh, a lucky fate for him, given what he deserves. Peter, how do you bring a guy like that to justice? Well, it's a great question, and the and it's not easy, uh, and it's not anything but complex and predicated on him somehow being arrested. But the International Criminal Court's prosecutor, a fellow named Karim Khan, has uh, you know received obviously the complaint, which would emanate from from Ukraine itself. There are investigators on the ground. Obviously, the Ukrainian government has been um, videoing and, and taking pictures and recording uh, some of the happenings in uh, in Ukraine, and that situation is is awful. But the evidence is there, and ultimately, an effective criminal proceeding cannot happen until the crime is over. And this is an ongoing, rolling crime that is... Uh, sadly accumulating more and more uh, death and destruction. And so it would only happen if within Russia there are individuals who, who would turn on Vladimir Putin and take him into custody. We've all seen those images of him sitting at a, a lengthy table, putting distance between himself and anyone who could approach him. We know that he's a very crafty, sinister guy in addition to everything else you could say about him. He spent time in the KGB, uh, the now FSB, so their secret service. He's trained in all sorts of the dark arts and knows how to defend himself as well as cause others imminent demise. And so to, to think that he's going to be brought to justice anytime soon is, is probably unrealistic, but it could happen. And it could happen in particular if there are individuals inside Russia within his own regime, uh, his top generals or others, who would somehow take him out of the country, um, whisk him away, so to speak. Special forces, individuals who are able to penetrate what I'm sure is a very, very tight guard around him at this point makes that unlikely. And we have seen that in the past with other notorious leaders. Uh, so we'll see what happens on that front. Earlier this week, uh, 40 countries came together in Germany to talk about what to do next. 
We've seen sanctions after sanction after sanction against Russia and against Putin himself and his family. We've seen all kinds of money, millions, even up to the billion mark when it comes to the U.S., contributing to the support of Ukraine in terms of, of military equipment and humanitarian aid and so forth. What what can be done? What What else can be done to get Ukraine out of this crisis? Well, it's, uh, it is going to continue to be a full-court press. Um, the sanctions are having a crippling effect on the Russian economy. Um, they're losing about a billion dollars a day, and that number will increase as more European countries in particular wean themselves off Russian oil and gas. The, um, the effect of the humanitarian crisis is, uh, is what I think a lot of countries have been focusing on, smaller countries that don't have the ability to send lethal weapons mentioned this earlier, uh, what they need most, the Ukrainians, the Ukrainian forces, their resistance, is heavy armor. So they need tanks, armored cars, what are called stinger missiles, sidewinders, or javelin missiles that can take down aircraft. Um, countries have been doing that. They need fighter aircraft. And the modern version of what your father would have flown. these are what will protect people on the ground. Uh, drones, um, the ability to access satellite information to track Russian troops. All of this technology is what will turn the tide and, and frankly, what has been um, working to great effect. Russian casualties outnumber Ukrainian casualties about two to one. That is, um, you know, in terms of those who are doing the actual fighting. Now, of course, the civilian casualties, uh, those numbers are shocking and yeah. continue to rise. And there's been stories of mass graves and documents um, that, that make this out. So the effort by larger, more armed NATO countries to get those lethal weapons into the hands of the, the fighters from Ukraine is what, in my view, will prolong this conflict. And I don't think that this is going to end suddenly. I don't think that there's any hope at this point of a diplomatic solution, although you never want to rule that out. But the, the significant depletion of Russian weaponry and hardware and forces is, is what gives Ukrainian, I believe, an advantage. As this war drags on, the Russian supply lines, production lines, are going to hit critical shortages. And that may cause them to back off in some of their ambition to take the entire country, but the, the place, the, the, the areas around Luhansk and Donetsk and in the Donbass, and of course Mariupol, which has been sort of seen as a, as a real critical point, is where the heavy fighting is going to take place for the foreseeable future. You are watching the situation closely. I feel very much that you are invested. Let me ask you this. If you were prime minister right now, what would you do? Well... Without looking back, um, I, I will say we should have put more weapons, more lethal weapons into their hands sooner, and that would have protected, I believe, more people. Uh, and that includes fighter aircraft and those satellite images. I think we have to up our game. We have a fleet of uh, Leopard 2 tanks that we used in Afghanistan that are, that are capable, that would save lives. We have M777 uh, howitzer long-range guns that uh, we use there as well. I understand now that some of those are headed that way. I think 
you know, having a presence uh, in Ukraine, in the capital, and showing the support that we've seen from people like Boris Johnson, I believe that that is more than symbolic. It, it motivates and gives the people of Ukraine hope that the, the outside world, that their friends are truly with them. They're not just words and, and sending prayers and hopes. It's actually having a presence on the ground. And I, I think we need to pull out all stops. There can be no holding back now in terms of all um, Russian products being cut off. We need to basically cut off any ability that Russia has to fund this war. We should kick them out of uh, the United Nations Security Council, IMF, World Bank. They should be completely removed from all of these international institutions, sending the message to them. And we should speak, as some world leaders have, to the Russian people. Because their country, as we know, is is a false democracy, and and they they pretend to have elections, but they do have impact on their leadership. And the people of Russia, uh, they need to hear from the Western world what is really happening. And all ability to communicate in Russia, as difficult as that is, uh, should be continued to send a clear message of the atrocities that their regime, that their army are perpetrating on the ground in Ukraine. So, you know, that's a long rambling answer, but all of the above and more, anything and all that we can do to prevent uh, further suffering in Ukraine, which ultimately is going to benefit us. And that's what we need to understand. If we're not fighting them in Ukraine, or at least doing all that we can to support the Ukrainians in their fight, we're fighting them somewhere else, including, and I don't want to sound alarmist, But let's never forget as Canadians that the Russians are our neighbors in the Arctic over a body of water. And we've seen their aircraft approach Canadian airspace. We've seen their ships and subs coming perilously close to Canadian waters. And they have desires and designs on our resources, as do other countries. And what impact this has on the ambitions of of China, Iran, North Korea, something we also have to keep in mind. We hope and pray that peace is on the horizon and so much more still needs to be done, most definitely. Peter McKay, former Minister of National Defense, Foreign Affairs and Justice, thank you so much for joining us on the feed. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Anne. Thank you. After the break, everyone sharing the road safely. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. Whether you're a driver, a pedestrian, or a cyclist, we're all in it together. Kevin Frankish now with some reminders from the CAA. Your business on 105.9 The Region. Well, the nicer weather is here, and that, of course, means that uh, drivers are now sharing the road more and more with cyclists. Teresa DeFelice from uh, CAA joins me right now. And CAA, Teresa, I mean, we think of CAA as being primarily about automobiles. It's in your name. Very true. Uh, But there's some fun tips, which are fun facts. One is uh, we not only are we in the mobility space, so any way you you wish to get around, 
But the founder of CA, the man who sort of started the whole thing with a little club of, of automobile owners, was actually a Canadian cycling champion. Oh, really? Okay. Yes. And, and really, when it comes right down to it, a cyclist can break the rules of the road. A, a, a vehicle can break the rules of the road. But it's usually the car that's going to win out no matter what. So no matter what what happens, you've got to be prepared for anything to happen and realize that if you're in a car, you're in something big. The potential for hurting someone to, you know, injuring, right, fatalities uh, you know, that happens with a car for sure. Listen, who's at fault? Those That becomes the sort of a focus or, you know, somebody did this versus, you know, I was trying to do this. But I think the the, the thing that we need to really be focusing on is, is how do we prevent those those collisions and those crashes in the first place? And that's all stemming from each each one of us taking accountability for our own behaviors, but also recognizing taking accountability for our own behaviors is about looking out for others as well. Being aware is something we talk about often, just simply about driving. You can get yourself or keep yourself from getting into trouble by just being aware. And that's especially true with cycling, with, with being sharing the road with cyclists. You know, we, we've come to rely on some really great technologies <laughs> that, have, that have, especially in the last few years, come into our, our cars, right? Blind spot, blind spot assist or, or cameras. But you know, when we learn to drive, and many of us learned to drive a long time ago, uh, it's a little different now. The, the cars are newer, but you know, those shoulder checks are really important. Uh, checking your mirrors constantly, not waiting for a beep in your car to tell you that someone's around you. Those those things that we learned at the core of driving lessons is about the skill of driving. All the technology is is an extra add on. We still have a responsibility to be aware of where we're driving who's around us, and how to avoid potential. You even offer decals for people to put on their side view mirrors. We do. This was started probably over 20 years ago. It's called the White Watch for Bike uh, program. And this is a little sticker that just says Watch for Bikes. It's a reminder, and you can put it on your driver's side mirror or on the passenger side or or. We've seen a lot of them in taxis. They put them on the doors to remind people when they're opening the door to watch for bikes. And the other thing we teach is called the Dutch reach, which is how to open your your door by actually using your opposite hand. So if you're a driver, you're using your right hand. And if you're a pedestrian, you're sorry, a, 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 a passenger. Sorry, a passenger. Yeah. You're using your left hand if you're sitting on the right hand of the car, right side. What does of the that car. do? So that really actually creates the motion and the momentum that you're turning your body. Oh, and and yes. so when you're turning your body, it helps yeah. you turn your head and use your peripheral vision mm-hmm. to see if a cyclist is coming up beside you. Because yeah. dooring is one of the most frequent collisions between a car and a bike. Yeah. And, and nobody wants to open the door on a cyclist and no cyclist wants a door opened on them. And that's a problem even where there are bike lanes. But when, when bike lanes share the road with parking lanes as well, generally you're coming up beside the driver in in very in car distance you know when they, if that car door uh, opens you're going to get hit yeah i know absolutely and and it's often a surprise and it's one that could have been avoided if whoever is opening the car door remember just to do that that shoulder check or to open the door with their opposite hand or you know actually physically move their body to make sure that there's no oncoming cyclist you know i've gotten myself into the habit when i'm turning right always to shoulder check 
it's not really something that was hammered into us uh, and still isn't. But I got into the habit, even during winter, even during a winter storm, I now am so used to just turning my head to the right to shoulder check to make sure there's no cyclist there. And it becomes a habit. That's what, what we're trying to get across is all of these things, if you do them regularly, they become second nature. So, you know, you can put the reminder, like the watch for bike decals, and we've, we've given out over 300,000 of those stickers. How do you um, get them? So, uh, you can get them at the CA stores. So, okay. you know, you can pick up a sticker, put it on your car, um, but things like the Dutch reach, right? So reaching over with your opposite hand, turning your head to check your blind spots. These are habits that if you, you know, if you do them all the time, they're second nature and that the technology in your vehicles is there to help support that. But that's your primary responsibility is to do those things. Now, I don't want drivers to think we're letting the cyclists off scot-free and that they can do whatever they want. Cyclists sometimes forget that they are legally vehicles and legally they also are governed by the Highway Traffic Act and they have rules they have to follow as well, no matter what your age. Correct. And, and, you know, over the last number of years... There have been modifications or new legislation brought in um, to ensure uh, greater responsibility, right? So having a front light, having a back light on your bicycle, um, having a, a, uh, a bike bell or a horn as, you know, to be used and create sound. These are actually all required by law now. Um, and, and part of it is, is it's, you know, a car has a horn, has, a, has lights, has all of these things. It is about trying to find ways to ensure, you know, visibility is there, um, you know, using things like the sound to alert people and to alert cars uh, because of, of who you're interacting with. You're interacting with pedestrians, other cyclists. And cars. And so, you know, these response, there are responsibilities on, on bike owners as well. And they do have to stop at stop signs and they do have to follow the rules of the road. Um, it, it can be a little bit easier on a bike to sort of mm, maybe not do them to the same degree that a car yeah. does. Um, but, you know, that's also part of the nature of a bike. It's, a bike is never going to be the same kind of gravity that a, a car has. Um, and so, there are rules for both and, and we all need to sort of, our, our, what we're preaching is we all need to share the road and respect one another to exactly. keep each other safe. Yeah. And, and I, I want to remind the cyclists as well, they have to stop for streetcars uh, when, when, when you're in the city. Um, four-way stops, you have, to, you have to abide by the rules of four-way stops. So if you don't know what the rules are, you better learn them. Uh, so, and you better teach your kids uh, these rules as, as well. Um, so sharing the road, there's also sharing responsibility as well. No, for sure. And I, and I think that there are a lot of cyclists who are drivers, right? So they, they know what the rules of the road are from that perspective as well. I think what we've seen get away from us a little bit is, you know, we used to have a very concentrated, when I was growing up in school, we had bike rodeos and, and we had mm -hmm. bike lessons to show us how to ride a bike and, and how to learn the hand signals um, you know, even as a driver, you kind of get taught the hand, hand signals, but I don't know how many drivers actually know what the hand signals are. So even if they're encountering them with a cyclist, they may not know what they mean and what to be looking out for. So there are things that you can do, Teresa, and there are things that the CAA is advocating, getting the decals, picking that up at the CAA store. Uh, you have information on your website, which is CAASCO. 
dot com. Uh, some some safety rules so that we can both share the roads. You know, cyclists and drivers alike tend to butt heads all the time. Yeah. And that's the exact opposite of, of what we want. We want them watching out for each other. It's it's so amazing how this topic gets people so riled up and it, we automatically go to, well, they're not doing this or that they're not doing that. And, and the reality is, is there's a lot of drivers, cyclists and pedestrians who aren't always exhibiting the best behaviors. Um, and, and that, you know, that can be challenging, but I think that there's two things to think about when you're in a car, you're driving of, you know, 1500 pounds of, mm-hmm. of metal and, and the level of, um, injury that can happen there is pretty significant. Nobody wants to hit anybody and nobody wants to be hit. And so let's stop saying and trying to blame somebody else and by pointing out someone else's fault and let's figure out how to do it well together. And and that ideally is where we want to get to. We need a balance of different modes of 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 getting around. We need buses, we need bicyclists and and to get on, you know, out of their cars too when they can. And we ha- and we need car drivers because there's, you know, we need to get to work and we need to have goods delivered and all of those things. We all have to be on the road for one reason or another. We're all trying to do something. So let's learn to forget about all the rhetoric of who's who's doing something wrong and let's figure out how to coexist together and treat each other with enough respect so that we keep each other safe. And with that, with those wonderful wise words, we will leave it there. Thank you, Teresa. My pleasure as always, Kevin. Teresa DeFelice from the CAA. Once again, CAASCO.com. We appreciate your business. We are 105.9 The Region. Jim Lang is next with how to prepare for an emergency. Well, the week of May 1st to the 7th is something very important for all of us here in the region. It's Emergency Preparedness Week, and you never think about it till something happens. You're like, I wish I was prepared to talk more about it. Thrilled to be joined by Morris Fasine, the manager of emergency management for York Region. Morris, how are you? Very good, thanks. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, so often we see stuff in the news and going, oh boy, are we prepared? Or something happens in our neighborhood. You're like, well, why didn't we do this? Why don't we as citizens just have something ready just in case? Because you never know what Mother Nature could throw at you. Yeah, I think, Jim, as you know, as every uh, every day we're busy with our lives and we carry on and we become complacent and we don't expect uh, the unexpected. But, you know, the theme for Emergency Preparedness Week is be ready for anything. So... I think it's important for people to sort of take stock of, you know, what's just happened over the last couple of years from the pandemic and and take some time and think about uh, knowing the risks that can happen in York region, making a plan and, uh, you know, be ready for anything. Morris, my, my family's lived in York region close to 20 years, and we've noticed a lot of changes with climate, with the environment, uh, up and down weather, tr- crazy weather, flash floods. That's a change. And my wife and I think about it often. Are we ready for certain things? Are we planning certain things? Because you just never know with the weather what York region can throw at you. Yeah, climate change is one of the biggest uh, risks. We're seeing sort of the uh, frequency and uh, I guess the um, the storms increasing uh, significantly. You know, we used to see a major storm every sort of once in a 50-year storm and a 100-year storm. We're now seeing those uh, storms quite quite more often um, now. 
You know what I didn't realize is I, I did some research and there are over 60 confirmed tornadoes every year, most of them in Southern Ontario, meaning York region's home to some tornadoes. What, what can you do to be prepared for your family, for your home, for tornadoes? We do have a, a an emergency preparedness guidebook, Jim, that I would recommend that everybody take some time and and look up our, our guidebook. And we break down some of the hazards in York region there on what you can do before an emergency, during an emergency, and after an emergency. So, for example, a tornado, which is you know extremely powerful and dangerous. Um, you know, before an emergency, you'd stay tuned to the local weather stations for updated information. Go to your basement, cold cellar. Put as many walls as possible between you and uh, outside. Shelter under a sturdy piece of furniture. You know, if you're at the office, uh, which quite often we're uh, separated from family members, take shelter in an inner hallway. Do not use the elevators. You know, stay away from windows. Avoid large rooms. Uh, and if outside, again, take shelter immediately. Don't go under any overpass or bridge. You know, if you can't find shelter, lie flat in a ditch and cover your head with your hands to protect your head. And afterwards, again, uh, follow, monitor social media or the media, which is a great source of information. Uh, be mindful of any debris, damage to your homes, buildings. Um, report any emergency situations to 911. And, uh, you know, often something people forget about is to notify your insurance agent or broker hmm. if your property's damaged. Get more details at york.ca slash be prepared. Speaking with Morris Facine, manager of emergency management for York Region, uh, winter storms, power outages, hazardous materials, incidents, floods, it's all covered there. And I often think about the, the old adage, and I just always want to confirm it with you, Morris, because of your expertise. If you see down power lines and you're in your car, the safest place is to stay in your car. Is that true? That's correct. The By staying in your car, the uh, tires ground uh, the vehicle, and uh, therefore you're protected within the vehicle. Oh, good, good. So now, you should, you should, yeah, you should stay there, wait for the fire department to attend, uh, and emergency services to uh, help uh, provide some help for you. What are some of the things we can do in case of flooding? Because I noticed in the last, well, five or six years in York Region, we've had some unbelievable rainstorms in the spring and summer that come out of nowhere, and sometimes there's low-lying areas that get flooded. How do we, how do we keep safe from those kind of incidents? Yeah, I think, again, with flooding, you know, you can do things before flooding occurs, during, and afterwards there's some things you should be uh, cautious of for sure. Um, you know, you can ensure your sump pump is working and you have battery backups. You can make sure your eaves troughs are cleared. You can uh, make sure that you have an insurance policy that covers, you know, sewer backup in your basement. You can uh, assemble the 72-hour preparedness kit, which is what we recommend. Um, during flooding, uh, move your furniture and electronics appliances up a little higher off the floor if you have any in basements and if it's prone to flooding. Uh, and have sandbags ready to use if uh, your area is prone to flooding as well. You can evacuate your home, but if you do, make sure you're not driving through any large puddles because you really don't know what's uh, underneath all that water that's covering the road. Oh, right. Of course. And another thing, I'm really glad you brought that up, that 72-hour preparedness kit, because nowadays you would need a portable phone charger because you need your phone to contact 911 emergency services. You may need some clean water and certain uh, emergency items. You never know when you need it, but if you don't have the kit and you need it, then you're really stuck with your family. Yeah, no, for sure. We, we recommend, Jim, that People know the risks within the region, which you've mentioned a few, you know, floods, hazardous materials, power outages, et cetera. And 
you know, they qu- happen quite frequently in, in York region, but not to the scale where you might need a 72-hour kit. But And, you know, make a plan because oftentimes family members are not, um, you know, you're not together. So make a plan, perhaps uh, have a meeting place, uh, you know, have a contact person that you can all contact to make sure that, uh, let them know that you're all safe. And of course, have that 72-hour kit because oftentimes the emergency first responders are busy dealing with emergent situations and may not be able to get to, you know, people that are impacted to evacuate them or, or other areas. Morris Fasine is a manager of emergency management for York Region. Get all the details for Emergency Preparedness Week, May 1st to 7th. Go to york.ca slash be prepared. And what Morris said is so true. Make sure you put together a 72-hour preparedness kit. You never know when you need it. And if you do need it, you'll be awfully glad you listen to Morris because he's a pro. Morris, thank you so much for doing this. And I really appreciate all your great information. Yeah, Jim, and during Emergency Preparedness Week, look at uh, York.ca, Twitter, Facebook. Uh, York Region has a, uh app on it uh, that you can download for emergency information. Also, we recommend, you know, uh, registering with Environment Canada or the Weather Network to receive uh, weather warnings and alerts. Um, so that's how you can be better prepared as well. So thank you for having me. And... I hope everybody tunes in on Emergency Preparedness Week. You know they will. Thanks to you, Morris. I appreciate you doing this, my friend. All right. Thank you, Jim. Coming up, the Moonlight Gala for Canadian art. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back. A stroll down memory lane and a look ahead to an incredible future. The McMichael Gallery, known today as the McMichael Canadian Art Collection, is a major public art gallery uniquely devoted to collecting the art of Canada. The McMichael is the permanent home of over 6,500 works of art by Tom Thompson, the Group of Seven, and First Nations, Métis, and Inuit artists whose powerful contributions have brought the gallery recognition and respect. I'm thrilled to welcome Ian DeJardin to the feed. He is an art historian and the executive director of the McMichael Canadian Art Collection. Absolutely great to have you with us on the show, Ian. Thank you. Thank you. Let's take a little stroll through history, past time, and start with how the McMichael Art Gallery came to be. What, what did the McMichaels have in mind? They were very keen on the group of seven and their contemporaries. And at that date, um, they had fallen a little out of favor. And so their great aim was to actually reinstate them in public favor. And so they collected and celebrated those particular artists in particular. This was in the early 50s, if I'm not mistaken. In the mid-60s, the McMichaels donated their collection, their home, their land to the province of Ontario. Why did they do that? I think uh, he was a a remarkable man. Bob McMichael, he um, he was an entrepreneur, and I think he had uh, he'd started collecting art in 1955, and had become kind of obsessed. He was sort of a shopaholic with <laughs> Group of Seven Art, and they had a huge collection, and they found that people were turning up at their door uh, asking to see it, and so they moved on to the idea of actually turning the place actually into a museum, and gave the collection to the province in 1966, open to the public. I love the idea that it's a, it's a public gallery, and that's so important that people have access and feel they have access. A lot of people, you know, in in the past have felt that art 
and the embracing of it is just not in their wheelhouse. The very, very different feeling at the McMichael Canadian Art Collection. I love the fact that A.Y. Jackson lived in the McMichaels' home for the last years of his life. And it's so interesting that the McMichaels themselves, six of the group of seven and their spouses, are buried in the McMichael Cemetery. Yes, and that was actually Jackson's idea. He and uh, A.J. Casson, who was a member of the group of seven as well, um, came together on that idea. And the McMichaels always wanted to be buried in the grounds, and Jackson suggested that the group of seven be buried there too, and six of them indeed are. I understand that the gallery itself is located on 100 acres along the Humber River, and it's on the original lands of the Ojibwe Anishinaabe people. That's very important to the history of the art gallery, but also to its future in terms of contributions from various people. It really is important. Um, It was one of the things coming from Britain that that struck me most forcibly about the, the land we're on. The Humber River is, of course, the the route of the Carrying Place Trail, which is a thousand-year-old First Nations trail. It was kind of Young Street before they thought of Young Street, between um, the Ontario Lakeshore and Lake Simcoe and the Georgian Bay area. And so uh, countless generations of First Nations have um, inhabited and walked through this land, and it's really important. And, of course, it's now conservation land. And they're discovering things archaeologically all the time. And so it's really important to us that we acknowledge that land. And we acknowledge that you also have collected some fine works of art from First Nations artists, Métis and Inuit. And that's an important part of the gallery right now. Oh, it's a third of our collection. And uh, just over the last two or three years, we've acquired some really major works by contemporary Indigenous artists as well. It's one of the areas where Canadian art is is booming. Um, Indigenous contemporary artists are gaining an international following and interest. And so we've been we've been kind of catching up and acquiring some major works by people like Ken Monkman, um and and the like of of of, of, of those artists, Ursula Johnson. These are great artists, and we're proud to have them. So, yes, it's very important to us. Can you, because this is radio, and I think you have a wonderful way of describing things, can you tell us what the McMichael Gallery looks like now? When you when you walk up to it, when you walk in, what do you see? What do you feel? What do you smell? What do you what What are the, the sensations? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's part of the history of the place. You know, it started as a cottage. It was basically the McMichaels built... Uh, a log cabin, and it's it's a kind of Scandinavian pioneer modernist log cabin, which sounds mad and is. Mm. Uh, but what they did was every two years they added a huge wing, so it now looks like this gigantic log cabin, huge recycled timbers. Uh, they used fieldstone, pink fieldstone, uh, in ways that probably wouldn't be possible today. So it still has this extraordinary home-like feeling to it. Uh, It feels like you're, that's why we like the idea of being called the home of the art of Canada, Mm -hmm. not just because of the collections, but because it does feel like um, you're entering someone's living room in a way, but just an enormous, sprawling one. And of course, the land, the woodland surrounding it is magical. It's a magical uh, environment, you know, not far from the center of of Toronto and all set and done, yes. 40 kilometers away. And and in some cases, and I mean no disrespect by this at all, but it's it's a well-kept secret. Sometimes 
within Ontario, within Canada, but around the world, it is recognized as one of the foremost leading art galleries, and particularly when it comes to our rich history. As an art historian, before you took over the reins at McMichael, what did you know about it? Well, very good question. I am one of the few people outside Canada who uh, is a fan of Canadian art. I I discovered it just through accidentally opening a book back in the 1980s and discovering the group of seven and falling in love then and there um, and deciding my career was very much in exhibitions and uh, I was a, a chief curator as well. And so I, I vowed I would put on an exhibition of Canadian art and eventually managed that in 2011 uh, with Painting Canada, which did come to the McMichael in the end after a tour of Europe. And it's just been a love story for me. But outside Canada, shameful. Mm. People don't know about Canadian art. I'm determined to change that. I'm glad to hear that. I'm sorry to hear that. For whatever reason, I thought this would be something that people talked about around the world, but not as much in Canada, but it seems to be the reverse. And you're going to change that. One of the ways that you're going to start to continue to put the McMichael on the map is a unique evening. It's called Moonlight Gala, Saturday, June the 4th, an evening in celebration of Canadian art. Bravo. Thank you. It's our major party, and we're so looking forward to it. It's been two years. The Moonlight Gala is one of those these magical events. I mean, every museum, every institution like ours has a, a, a big fundraising gala like this. But ours is very special. And looking back, I mean, we know the pandemic hasn't gone completely, but um, nonetheless, looking back at our galas, they're always outside. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they're under the stars. It's a magical evening on the, in June, um, and people wander around outside, and there's wonderful food, and there's wonderful drink, and there's wonderful orchestra. The Montreal Rhapsody Orchestra will be playing. There's a dance, uh, dance floor and, a, and an art auction. All of those things make it a very special evening, and I've never encountered a gala quite like it anywhere else, to be honest. And when I read about it, it also states that it will be held amid the soaring pines. It makes you want to paint that, frankly. (laughs) Well, it is. And this is the most amazing thing. Of course, everybody dresses up, so everyone looks beautiful. (laughs) And they're all wandering around in this beautiful landscape. It's It's a magical event. It really is. And tell me about the fundraising aspect of this. I'm not sure people understand why and where the money goes. Can you help us with that? Well... Um, you know, we, we do everything we can towards supporting the art of Canada, and our our mission is very special. It's about um, it's about world class exhibitions. We've got ten major exhibitions touring Canada over the next two years. We have industry leading programs of for children and youth and adults. We have public talks and classes, and we look after these wonderful grounds as well. And all of that costs a fortune, as you can imagine. And uh, so this is our, our way of fundraising so that everyone who attends these galas is actually supporting all of that good stuff. It's very important for us. Uh, it's a once-a-year once event, and uh, we put everything we have into it. It's, it's, it. We feel it very strongly. Oh, it sounds magical. It really does. I, I'm, I'm so excited for you, and I know that it will be a big hit, and you will raise all kinds of money that's necessary to keep keep art in the eyes and the hearts of Canadians and beyond. Where do people go to get more information and to buy tickets? 
they go straight to our um, to our, our website. It's mcmichael.com, and they'll find all the information there. Of course, in these strange pandemic times, you know things you have to keep keep up because things change uh, on a dime. Uh, but all of the information will be there and will be kept up to date, and you can find all about tickets. And uh, the various issues, like there's an, there's an early bird special, and I'm mentioning that because that you have to get your tickets by May the 1st, so you'd have to move quickly on that one. But there are very good uh, shopping experiences linked to those early bird tickets, so I, I advise you to have a look quickly. Well, Ian DeJardin, you are a superb human being, an art historian extraordinaire, and the executive director of the McMichael Canadian Art Collection. All the best on June the 4th. Bless you, Anne. Thank you very much for that. I look forward to seeing you in your gown. Yeah, well, thank you. <laughs> I'm not sure about that, but <laughs> it's it's a little on the old side, and after the pandemic, a little tight. <laughs> well, I'll be in my kilt, so okay. that will oh. be exciting. Excellent. Oh, you're a hoot. Thank you so much, Ian. <laughs> okay, bye. Bye-bye. Does the purchase of Twitter by Elon Musk have you wondering what's going to change? You're not alone. Tina Cortez with One Professor's Take on the Tweets. According to York University's website, Professor Grant Packard from the Schulich School of Business is an expert in marketing, social media, and entertainment. He's got all the bases covered. Professor, what's the problem with Elon Musk, the guy known for Tesla and SpaceX, the world's richest person? What's wrong with his purchase of Twitter for $44 billion? Well, we'll find out soon. We don't know quite yet. But the question is, clearly, Elon Musk is a person who values free speech, He's uh, used the platform himself very successfully um, and and controversially in terms of how he uses it. So I think the question will be, um, what does he see as an open marketplace for speech and, and how does that fit with, with most people? Well, and he calls Twitter the digital town hall where issues can be debated, the basis of free speech. Isn't this then a good thing? I think in many ways it is. I think it's it's very clear that that we you know Canadians and and many other nations value free speech tremendously. But the challenge we've all seen with social media as an information space is that it it gives voice to just about anyone, and it kind of kind of gamifies information, you know, the market space in a way that may be inconsistent with how you know we thought about free speech a couple centuries ago. Mm-hmm. Now. Twitter was expected to reject the offer, but the banks called the bid fair. Why the resistance to his ownership, do you think? Well, I, I think it's kind of the perceived unpredictability and unreliability of Elon Musk, particularly as it pertains to Twitter, because he's been so active in that space and made kind of controversial statements, even about about buying companies, that, that people have a hard time taking at face value what he says. Now, I think on the other hand, people, you know, widely accept that he's an incredible entrepreneur, an incredible leader, and an incredible kind of, um, you know, idea person in terms of the, the businesses that he's built. But I think they're just worried about, especially with this, this particular product, this platform, Twitter, that he's been very active with himself, what he, you know, how he's going to use it. Because his, his notions about free speech and how he's used it personally are, are, are quite different. Mm-hmm. Now, what if he does remove, you know, moderations and loosens the rules? 
uh, you know, in, in some way, that's a, a good thing. I think in a, in a world where we have public debate and very different opinions, you know, we, we need to have that. But I think we've all seen that the social media space can also become a, a platform for, for hate speech and trolling and very intentional misinformation by, by parties that are very well organized and well funded. And so while we, we want free speech, we want people to be able to, to share their opinions and not be punished for sharing their opinions. It seems like the, the social media environment hasn't kind of provided that open and constructive marketplace for, for free speech that we all hoped it would be. Do you think Donald Trump will return? You know, the fact that he says he doesn't, he <laughs> won't, makes me, makes me expect that he will. Um, I mean, it was such a powerful tool for him. I don't know if his, his trust social or truth social platform um, is going to be successful as he thinks it is. I wouldn't be surprised if he comes back. So the last word, what do you think Elon Musk's plan is for Twitter? Why was he so focused on purchasing this platform? I, I think he had genuine beliefs about free speech being being important. And I, I genuinely believe uh, he wants to separate it a bit from the traditional business model of social media, which is advertising support. And he has the resources to do that, to pull back a, a little bit by being driven driven by the market. And I, I you know, he does plan to, and I believe he plans to to try to manage spam bots and continue to manage hate speech while while he said he wants you know the the, the rightmost 10% and the leftmost 10% to, 10% to be equally frustrated and equally like mad at, at social media and to some extent that's uh, that's a constructive vision and so i think he's going to implement you know some ideas to try to improve the environment try to make it more open and transparent and, and how these these different ways social media can be abused, hopefully to to help improve this information environment. And I genuinely believe he's going to attempt to do that. Okay, I know I said that was the last word, but one more question. Do you think that many will leave Twitter? I I doubt it. Um, and, you know, until we see what the changes are going to be and if the environment changes, I think especially for the people that use that that medium, that website to communicate, it's it's just too powerful in terms of and it and it's too addictive in terms of, you know, generating an audience and trying to capture the zeitgeist with, with one, you know, with just a few words. I, I can't imagine we're going to leave it and there there's a competitor that could replace it in the near term. Professor Packard, if we want to follow you on Twitter, how can we do that? Um, my handle on Twitter, I believe, is at Grant Packard. Terrific. Thank you for joining us on the feed. Thank you so much. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.